Hello, and welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and today we have a very special guest uh, colleague of mine, Dan Singer, who is an experienced designer uh, here at Think and has just finished some really interesting work that's going to help us talk a little about uh, notational bias and how we have to be careful when how we phrase questions, how we uh, put things together. So I'll let uh, Dan, I'll let you uh, kind of introduce yourself and talk a little bit about the work you've been doing with uh, the Know Your Worth project. Great. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so so we, we decided to call our project Know Your Worth. Um, I worked on it with two collaborators, Lauren Halden and Anthony Wynn, uh, who are both des- uh, other designers in Philly. Um, the project is really, um, it's really built around a survey um, around uh, compensation and with a specific focus on um, on understanding how uh, self-identity demographics really fit into the compensation question um, mm-hmm. for designers, for, for largely digital designers in Philly is what we were looking at. Um, we, yeah, we just, our members of the community were, were friends um, and, and started the project together really to help, um, kind, of, kind of for two purposes. One was really to give the community a, um, a something to understand how national trends of pay look in Philly. So we specifically focused it in Philly. We, we, we checked it with, with Philly people and we were only trying to send it out on Philly channels um, because we wanted to understand, okay, I know that I hear that women are paid less on average. So what does that look like in Philly? I hear that mm-hmm. people who are non-white are paid less on average. What does that look like in Philly for digital designers? So we specifically really narrowed in the scope. That was kind of the one angle. And the other was meant to be, I am a digital designer and I want to understand some idea of what my company assesses, like my financial worth to them. I need yeah. a, a benchmark to yeah. sort of... Um, just have a starting point, especially for those who are in underrepresented groups or are new to the career, um, which which all of us, uh, all three of us on the project have kind of been in those identities at some point. So it yeah. resonated a lot for us. And you find that that's like just a common misunderstanding that people just don't know their worth, right? They don't really know if they're being paid the national median, the city median, like the industry median. Like, do people generally not have a sense of how their salary compares to everyone else's? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that I mean, from, from personal experience, that's kind of what spurred on the project from the three of us having this experience. But then as we started talking to more people, they were telling us that they feel really lost in a sea of um, you have all these tools now that tell you what your salary should be, whether mm-hmm. that's Glassdoor or LinkedIn. You can put in all your information and it spits out a number. Um, but then they don't understand, is that what I'm really worth? Like, this feels like a lot. Um, Mm. Or um, they don't, you know, they feel like they shouldn't be asking for this much because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, You know, I'm new to the field, or my experience is, like, sort of practical, but not exactly practical. These sorts of, all these little excuses as to why I should actually be lower. So really, like, no understanding of where... I should be, and the tools that are out there aren't really filling that that gap. Well, yeah, and there's like there's definitely some biases kind of baked in, like culturally around that as well. I mean, I know that there's a statistic around when a woman is applying for a job, if she does not meet 100% of the qualifications, she's less likely to apply. Whereas a man might apply if they only fit like 50 or 60%. And it's this notion of 
feeling like you need to be more than in order to ask for something. Right. It sounds like a little bit of that's baked into this. Absolutely. Um, my, my collaborator, Lauren, uh, she brought up when we started, we were talking, we mentioned the, um, that we were going to talk about bias today. And she was like, I'm interested in, in self bias and responding mm. to this. We had a question about how many years of experience do you have as a designer? And she said, she looked back at what she put for that. And how it was she actually undersold herself um, because she's like, okay, well, what were the years I was working practically as a designer? Like my title was designer. Yeah. And as those of us in the field know, often that's not your title. Right. It's not anywhere in there, but that's what you're doing. And that's what brought a lot of us here. She was interested if, is that a further of like that gender dynamic, that same one that tells um, that when a woman tells herself, oh, I can't apply for this, I don't meet all of these things, is that also saying I'm not as experienced as maybe my male colleagues are saying that they are yeah. um, in, in that same way? It's, we, we can't know that necessarily, but it is, it's, it, it's really interesting to reflect on that. Yeah, and I feel like it's especially problematic in our field where job definitions are kind of fuzzy. I mean, I know... When I tell people I have had 10 to 15 years of content strategy experience, the time when my business card literally said content (laughs) strategy, it's only about six years. Right. But I was definitely doing the work before then. It just had a different title. Right. Um, And that is a interpretation on my part and and, and a bit of confidence building on my part, uh, even a bit of entitlement on my part. Right. And it's sort of like you don't have this go to. It's not like being a doctor or a lawyer where there's literally a certification before you're allowed to call yourself X, Y, or Z. Um, And so it's fertile ground for imposter syndrome or any number of self biases. Yeah. Yes. I think that's, that's a, that's a huge problem. Um, We've, I mean, and we found even among people in the survey, even among people who, who do, you know, consider themselves to be designers said, I'm a designer. I should take your survey. The, the job titles were, I I wish I had a a unique count of them off the top of my head. It was enormous. We started our presentation when we did a show and tell about this last week with a word cloud of all of the titles (laughs) just for like, just in like this, what we, this kind of like UX UI designer sort of role, the titles still blossomed. There's so many of them. Um, and ultimately one, one kind of conclusion we found is like that, that title stuff can hurt people, especially yeah. those new to the career. Cause I don't know, am I a UX strategist three or am I a UX slash UI designer junior or something? It, it's, it's really challenging. Yeah. And it's, um, what, what would you say is kind of the advantage of, you know, knowing your worth? Like once you do start to get a feel for that comparison to others or to peers, like what are the things you're getting out of that that you um, are kind of lack before you have that context? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think there is, um, I think for us what we came to was there's sort of like, a, well, we know there's a power dynamic in the employer-employee relation. Sure. Um, certainly when it comes to like a salary negotiation, there's that point in which your manager who is who's really... Um, advocating for you throughout the course of the year has to say at this at, at some point they sort of as an employee sort of become in opposition to you it feels yeah. like they're in opposition to you even though in many cases they're not but they sure. they are sort of representing this um, your your employer and, and you're trying to figure out well what's the right amount to ask for that I'm really worth so there's so much insecurity around that moment it becomes this yeah. this sort of like dreaded moment for people um, and I think 
that what we found was that um, from from just kind of people reporting to us um, about their feelings around compensation, we found that um, that that insecurity then it's it's not just insecurity about the moment of asking of of pay negotiation. It's insecurity about my job in general, yeah. right? It kind of carries throughout, um, and so I think adding a little bit of stability, adding a little bit of information to the employee to kind of help balance that out a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think it is ultimately like helping people feel a little more self-assured. I think this problem, I don't, I don't know if this is your experience. It feels to me like this problem is, is especially pronounced when you're, when you're newer to it Mm. and when you're newer to the field. Yeah. Um, and, and that over time you can sort of like coalesce around a more, uh, a more like stable kind of identity as a professional. Well, I mean, the longer you've been in it, the more history you have to sort of say, well, I know what I have been paid at least versus mm-hmm. I've never done this before. I've never asked someone permission, right. To do this before. Like you definitely, I, I, I definitely feel that. And when the field is newer, it hurts too. Like I, you know, content strategy job to content strategy job. It's like, I don't really know how much I'm supposed to charge for this. Like, you know, I even, I don't know. I think one of the most powerful things you can know if you're able to at an organization is how much, especially if it's a client really a client services relationship kind of job is how much you are, how much you're being billed out at, mm-hmm. right? Like your worth in terms of what is an hour of your time worth to the company mm-hmm. in terms of what they're charging clients for. I think it's a super powerful piece of information to have. Um, uh, that again, I don't know that people either have access to or even think to try to figure out. Right. Right. Um, and I, and I think that it's, I think like all of these, especially in this, in like the, the consultative or agency world in which we do have a billable rate, I think it, it adds even more of that complexity because yeah. then you do find that number. And it, if you like really spread that out over your annual salary, you're like, I'm getting totally ripped off here. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in, of course, in reality, that's, that's like, that's not the case, right? For me yeah. as, as an individual, um, I let think company sell my labor <laughs> because yeah. I can't do it and have no interest in it. Yeah. Um, but I think that when we have a little more transparency around those sort of numbers, um, I think it, it helps it can help people feel a little more secure around that. So yeah. I think that transparency, that raising that conversation was a really big goal of ours. Yeah. Just like there's more concrete information for us to talk about now. Yeah. It's absolutely. not even like I know the right answer. It's I have real things that I can put in my hands to talk yeah. about. Yeah. And that's, and it's, you know, there's a, there's a thing called choice supportive bias that really just gets at this, you know, fundamental understanding is that when people make decisions, they don't make them in a vacuum. They make them by comparing things to things. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have things to compare to, like you make poor decisions right. <laughs> or at the very least less informed decisions. So I think it's a really, that's a really powerful, I mean, to put it simply, you know, knowledge is power. Right. <laughs> and if you're dealing with a situation with a weird power dynamic, the best you can do is arm yourself with knowledge. Knowledge. Right. Um, and I think, and, and I'm conscious, we, I think we've, we've talked about this before, of like uh, that it, it does like I'm arming myself with knowledge, right? I'm going into battle with, yeah. with this person. Um, and I think that, um, and I, I, I had sort of like, um, the three of us who were collaborating on the project, we talked about like, what is this like to talk about at our employers? In fact, Mm -hmm. last week we presented on this, a show and tell at think company, Mm -hmm. um, talking about this. And I think we, we came to this place where for a good employer, 
the employee having more information is is good. Like yeah. that that is really what they want. They don't. I I think I hope that they employers don't good employers don't want their employees coming in here totally lost so that they can take advantage of them. But I do think there is some level at which the employee needs to know what to ask for. And, yeah. And this is, this is hopefully helping that a little bit. Yeah. And I will, I will say to things credit, like when you first come on board, they like sort of have a, how think makes money, you know, presentation that everyone mm-hmm. is, I don't know if they're required to attend, but they're encouraged to attend, which I, I find just as a designer, it's a good thing for people to understand that they don't necessarily teach you if you have any kind of formal design education is just right. business. Um, so there's a, there's a level of that as well, even just sort of how you think about yourself as a designer, as labor, right? And that right. like that that framework and trying to find. And we talked a little bit about this too. Like I'm really curious about like there's a very not there's a very zero sum game approach to salary negotiations right now, and I'm really curious about like what are some non zero sum game approaches to that employer employee relationship. Um, that kind of like, I don't know, level that out a bit and take some of the anxiety out of it. Right. Like right. that's, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know what that looks like, but right. I'm really curious to see if there's ways to play with that. Right. And I think one thing, um, one thing that came out a lot, I think that the issue that came out the most was, am I going to get in trouble for sharing this survey mm. around at my workplace? Oh, wow. Am yeah, I sure. going to get in trouble? So not even, not even talking about salary, not even saying my number to other people, but bring, giving them the opportunity to report their number. I think this, this shame, I mean, there, there really is, there's, there's so much wrapped up into, um, my salary into your compensation. And that's why, like, I think know your worth is this really interesting title for this project that we landed on because it's really, what is my worth to my employer and what, what, and like, what is my worth to myself? Those are two separate things yeah. and shouldn't be bound together in yeah. pay, but it does sort of play with this idea that, um, it, it plays with that, that concept that this, that pay is this really personal, it, it's extremely yeah. personal. Um, and, it, and, it, and that benefits employers, right? We don't want to talk about our pay and that's why projects like this are necessary. Yeah. We don't want to talk about it, but really it, that only hurts us ultimately. Well, I want to explore that a little bit. Like, why do you think there is such a weird, why are we so weird about money, right? Like, I feel like this is especially true in America, although I can't point to a place where people talk about their salaries all the time. But I feel like in particular, there's this very weird relationship with class that we have that makes it really weird to talk about money. We don't train it. We don't teach it to our kids. We don't like to talk about it. It would feel really weird to say my salary out loud, even in a private conversation. Like, what's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny. When we first, um, we had, we were chatting about this, uh, my collaborators and I were ch- chatting about this project for a long time. When we met in person for the first time, we said, okay, we're going to buckle down and do this. Um, we, we happened to be at um, La Colombe and... Lauren said something like, okay, well, we know at some point we're all going to have to just get drunk and say our salary numbers, right? <laughs> and then we just said, we, we laughed and we're like, okay, like we have to say it right now. So even starting this project about salary, we ha- had to sit there and like work up the courage, just say yeah. our numbers to the three of us in private who were right doing a project about salary. Um, and it felt radical. It, it truly did. Mm. Um, to, to have this out there um, because instantly what we got back was support for one another mm. in this way of like, oh, like you, you can be, you know, like 
you're good, but you could be doing a little more or, or whatever. Or, or like, oh, it's nice to know that we're kind of in the same place. Like this, there is like, you'd get this, like, this just comfort in, in having this sort of like, um, this veil lifted over this, yeah. this totally secret piece of your life. Um, it, I, and I think like the answer to like, why do we feel so much shame about this is probably like capitalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Unfortunately, as you know, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that it, it, we are taught that our worth is associated to our labor and then also how much we're, we're yeah. paid, um, for that labor. And, um, I think that that happens relatively early on. Um, I think now even more, I think students think about what, how much am I paying for my degree versus how much, are, what are my, my employment prospects afterwards and oh, how yeah. much can I get paid? How long will it take me to pay off this debt that I, um, amounted in yeah. this time? Um, and I think, I, I do think we, and we, we did hear, um, people talking about their employers shaming them mm. for um for sharing salaries it's my understanding i think it's it's illegal to prevent um pe- not a lawyer just to be clear sure. experienced <laughs> designer not a lawyer but it's my understanding that it is illegal to prevent employees from talking about their salary mm-hmm. but you can shame them into not doing yeah. that right you can a lot of things are illegal right? <laughs> yeah, all sorts of so i think that what we heard um from people was that there is a lot of that sort of like shaming secrecy thing at the workplace and then yeah. people take that with them i think you 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 realize like this is a thing that i'm not supposed to talk about because i could really hurt this person's feelings or i could really hurt my feelings yeah um and that stinks. <laughs> well, and that's, and I think that worth word is really worth considering, right? Because I feel like the part of the shame is also in what if I say a number and the person I'm with has mm-hmm. a much lower number? Yeah. I'm going to feel like a jerk. Yeah. And we live in a city with a considerable homeless population. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so even walking on the street, there's a real weirdness around, like, we are not, we are a society that very rarely will you find a scenario where people of varying income levels are in the same place at the same time. Like the subway is about the closest you get to that. <laughs> yeah. And even that's not a super wide range, but we're just not, we're not comfortable with it. And I think that is come back to this notion of we equate our human val- value with yes. our monetary worth, which again, because capitalism, but <laughs> I, but I feel like that is like kind of at the root of this like, I th- feel like shame is exactly the right word. Like, we're happy for our salaries, but we're kind of ashamed of them. Yeah. Um, Tony, Tony, one of the other collaborators, we were talking about his salary, and he said, you know, I, I'm really, really comfortable, you know, when comparing it to others, do I make a little, should I make a little more? Maybe. But I think about my parents, mm. and, and, you know, this isn't necessarily my story to tell, but talks about the, the amount his parents make and how he feels about how much more he makes than them. Like then you get into these questions of, am I working that much harder than my parents who make so much less? That's yeah. That's the other thing. Right. So we, and we talked a little bit about this. So, so I, I saw, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates speak last night and there are all sorts of just wonderful little truth bombs he dropped. But one of them that really stuck with me is this phrase that power conceals itself. Right. And we see all sorts of iterations of this, of like 
people who aren't the victim making themselves out to be the victim. That's one version of it. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the versions of it is this like notion of I'm going to set up a, a narrative around if you work really hard, you will make a lot of money. And someone who's made a lot of money has worked really hard. Mm -hmm. Whereas the underlying reality is, generally speaking, people, as you sort of move up the ladder of life, the less you do, the more you make. Mm -hmm. Like anyone who's had any kind of success generally starts to see that pattern repeat itself. A very simple example is movie stars never pay for anything <laughs> like you know um but uh but 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 that's sort of i think a version of power concealing itself it's sort mm -hmm. of like you don't yeah you don't really see that there is in fact a huge disconnect between labor and value and worth right right you sit there and you know you're making you know slide decks or whatever to to walk stakeholders through and then it comes to salary negotiation time and you're like am i really worth this much money in the world <laughs> like there are people who i mean you're talking about the homeless population of philly you walk past them and you're like am i really like quote unquote worth this like insurmountable amount more than than these people just because yeah. i make this and, and i think that becomes challenging for a conscientious person in Ooh, yeah. 2019 yeah um, especially um I think I think this it, there's so much that's like tied up in this you know annual salary. Yeah, um, I do want to talk about um, notational bias a bit, and mm -hmm. it's this notion of like how you like it shows up for people like us, and when we create forms. And so when you were creating the survey, I know you put a lot of thought into how you asked people to identify yourselves, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you approached that. Yeah, um, that that was something that was super important. Um, we decided with this survey, for, for some context, we decided to make demographic information required. Um, it's 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 typically not. I think most of the time we come into those those questions we see are optional. Our concern was when we had this stated aim, which was to talk about um, demographic trends in compensation. If someone answers these answers salary questions with with no demographic information, what do we do with that? It, it sort of then ends up diluting those numbers. And we did find, um, interestingly, there are, um, there are reports that um, so sometimes when majority populations, in this case, you know, like white people largely, mm. um, are confronted with, with questions of their race, that they immediately go into this defensive mode. Huh. It, it does prime them in a particular way. Um, and to the point where we were afraid that if we offered the ability to, to not select that, that people, that people might not. Um, and so this is all to say, in the context of requiring demographic information, we knew that it was our absolute responsibility to make that make those questions as inclusive as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did a lot of research um, about um, effective, effective demographic questions, um, not just effective, but, but uh, inclusive demographic questions. Um, a lot of the resources I looked into were, were from psychology because they're, they're asking these questions a lot and now, and they're very recent. So they're trying to, now they're trying to ask these questions very fairly. And so as an example, um, the gender question, um, I think the, the, in paid compensation, the first thing we think of is, is, is women make something like 78 cents to the dollar of men. So you, the, the very first thing we think of about pay disparity is this gender, um, question. And so, um, I think that a lot of us know who are, who are thoughtful designers know that, sort of the male, female, the question of 
what is your gender? Is it male? Is it female? A lot of us are, are to the point where like that question is not good, right? We, mm-hmm. we know that there are so many people who have identities that are not reflected in those two responses. Um, but th- there was something very interesting. Um, now you also have things like you have, um, I think SurveyMonkey's question bank um, had, uh, and we didn't use SurveyMonkey, but the, the SurveyMonkey question bank has gender as a, as a question you can just drop into a survey. And it says it's, it's male, female, or other. Mm. And please identify and for anyone who's had to select other on a survey at any point, it's literally othering. It's like, <laughs> like kind of on the nose. Right. It's, it's, it's isolating. And, and then it's also like, it, it's to what end? What, what, do I, what do I get out of that? And so we thought a lot about, well, what are the presumed defaults in, in survey questions? Like this is, I'm coming in and saying, I'm asking people to do more work to identify as something other than the default. Um, they have to click other, they have to type in their thing, they have to figure out, well, what, what kind of question am I asking? What am I going to use this information for? Um, and so one, one article had this phrasing for the gender question that I, that I loved, which was, how do you currently identify your gender? Mm. Type here, and it's blank. And now any, anyone who, who, does, who does research, who does surveys, is like, oh, God, a blank. Because <laughs> right? I'm afraid of what that means for analysis. Sure. We knew that because we didn't have a... We weren't going to have an enormous set um, that we could do the repair work necessary on right. that blank. Yeah. Um, were we doing this at a national level? We would have to sit there and say, like, do we have the time and resources to dedicate to, to repairing you know, thousands of responses, I, you know, we, we couldn't have done that, but, but because we knew the set was, was relatively small and we knew that it was so important that we dedicated time to that. Um, I've seen some surveys, um, for the gender question that, that list all of the responses that it might be like, um, it might be like, uh, like male, female, non-binary as a third choice or something, or non-binary slash gender non-conforming. Um, there was, this came up this week, um, I think Mattel released a, a non-binary set of dolls. Hmm. Uh, of it's the first non-binary set of dolls um, to release by Mattel, um, and and someone who identifies as non-binary, she's a writer, um, talked to NPR, and she said um, she said I worry that we're getting to this place where where non-binary just becomes it's now a gender ternary instead of a gender binary it's like i'm (laughs) man woman or non-binary it's this third option instead of completely like subverting the paradigm itself um and i think it, it not to say that our blank on our survey is subverting the paradigm but it's allowing people to say this is the thing that reflects me right now in yeah. my own language. Well, there is even just from a user experience perspective or a psychological perspective too. Is, is there's a, there's an there's an argument around visual weight, right, mm-hmm. and equivalency that if I list male, female, non-binary, I am implicitly saying that non-binary is the same category right. as male or female, but in fact, it's literally a different way of asking the question, right? right? And it's sort of like, there's like a challenge, I feel. I feel like I'm really interested in design challenges that address things like that, say, how can I present non-binary in a way where it really is non-binary, right? right. Where it really is not creating a false visual equivalency with these other options. Right. And it, 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 it is a design challenge, which I think is, is really interesting, is because when you start asking questions 
fairly ethically they they do blossom <laughs> like they 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 become there's there are many of them um for example the the gender question it's it it was how do you currently describe your gender which is today when i'm filling this out how do i describe mm-hmm. my gender identity this there's a separate question which is do you identify as transgender mm. right so that where the, those are often collapsed into one question right. To to be correct, gender identity and transgender identity are two separate things. Um, I go through the world. I identify as a man. That that's different than my trans a transgender answer to a transgender identity question. Um, and so you find all those places where those things start to like bifurcate a little bit um, and spread out. And as designers, we then have way more questions to deal with. And so I think I I love your this thought that like what is a different way in which we think about forms and yeah. asking these things um, that I think, I don't think that there are great answers to that yet. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know. I, I find that kind of exciting actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, is. Ooh, this is a new challenge. Yes. Um, how did you think about race? Yeah. Uh, th- this is interesting. And I think anyone who follows the census knows that like mm. this, this has <laughs> been answered by the census in, in, in very interesting ways. So you have like this race and ethnicity question. And sometimes those are separated. Sometimes ethnicity is like just Hispanic identity and race is something else. They, yeah. I've seen that. It's so very weird. confusing. <laughs> very confusing. <laughs> and it doesn't actually reflect like lived reality. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's interesting. This, this question, we didn't feel that we could have a blank for sure. because it's like, it's it's when you're asking about race and ethnicity, it's like where do I start? So we felt like we did have to have something to seed this, um, and so the best thing we we could do was was do a lot of research into like what are categories that make sense to group, what are categories that that don't make sense to group, and there is a fair amount of of research about of people trying different things here, um, and and. So we listed options. We made it multi-select so that I can select as many oh, of them nice. as I want. And then we also had an option that was specifically called free response. It was so I could check, I, I could check as many of these as I want, and still check free response and fill something in there. Um, and it, you know, we we didn't call it other. Um, sure. <laughs> and though that's like a semantic difference, I do think it matters, right? It's oh, yeah. like this is this is your space to identify as you want, but it, it's a challenge. Absolutely. <laughs> did you did you find that people took advantage of the multi-select of the free response? Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, 100%. Um, I'm the, the majority, I mean, to be clear, uh, the majority of our respondents were, were white, and they mm-hmm. only selected white. Um, but it is interesting when you, there are a lot of people who's, who would select white and something else. There are people who typed in multiracial, so mm. they didn't, you know, that that, that, that was their identity. And, and, and it the question was like, which of these best describes you? Mm. Um, and if, if that person says the thing that best describes me is just the word multiracial, then that is the truth that they live. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's on us then to respect that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it makes the analysis less neat. Sure. Right. I want a pie charter. I want whatever. Well, it's, it's funny what you say, like as a collaborative effort, the, the problem presented by reflecting the true nature of reality yeah. <laughs> in all its complexity is sort of like uh, a macrocosm of what our brains go through and why <laughs> stereotyping exists. Because it's hard to think about complexity. <laughs> yes. It is so much easier for, you, for me to look at you and say, you look black, I'm going to call you black. Right? <laughs> like, it's so much harder to be like, oh, I have to think about subjective truth? What? Right. I have to think about different people's, you know, lived truths? What does that even mean? Right? Like... Uh, I, I, it's like, I get it. I understand why in, 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 in making the effort 
to design a form that reflects um, the complexities of human experience, you begin to understand why people stereotype in the first place. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I think like the analysis that, that we did would have been done ages ago if, if we did conventional survey yeah. tools, but it's not like, what does it mean to do a community project if you're completely ignoring the things that people are saying? Yeah. Um, it, it's hard. I mean, it, it makes it really, really challenging, but it, I think that it's worth it. Like in the, yeah. in the end, like, and, and because a survey is not, a survey is not just a neutral receipt of information from mm. people. Um, and I think that's, really hard for us with with especially with with white privilege with male privilege with these majority privileges to understand is that that these um like answering questions you're asking people to pull out parts of themselves and just give it to you yeah right um and so if you're making this a painful process to them even if you come out with this beautiful visualization that's really easy to use and it really helps people if you've made it really painful to receive that data i don't think you're you've done a good job yeah it's not just about the outcome um and that's and so like making it as painless as possible was really important um and and i think and i think we think i think a little too much as designers often about just a survey is just like, it's just a collection of data, but, it, but it's not, it requires intention and it requires purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 and our work actually, like people reached out to us and say, said like, th you know, they, they thanked us for, for having options that reflected them, mm -hmm. allowed them to, to do that. Um, and, and I think that ultimately shows that, that this approach, we didn't get it hundred percent right sure. for sure. But I think that this approach, this intention is well received by people. Um, and I think it's more noticeable when they're not those sort of like default answers. Yeah. And that is, I mean, that's one way to think about it, right? Is like a, a survey is an, is an opportunity to let someone feel seen, right? Yeah. Um, one of the things I want to get to the results, but one more question yep. I want to explore is this notion that I'm hearing more and more from like data scientists or data journalists, which is we have a misconception, especially when you think about AI, we have this misconception that data is neutral yep. and everyone I've talked to who actually does the work is like, no, <laughs> data is not neutral. People don't get that. Talk a little bit about how like that, I don't know, came out as you started to, to work with this. Yeah, um, I think all the places in which, I mean, just as a start, all the places in which we realized that uh, we realized our own biases in the questions that we asked. Mm. We had we had a group read for um, kind of like what you would call like a sensitivity read, mm -hmm. um, and they a lot of they brought some questions that we were missing or some of the language that wasn't quite correct. Um, but like someone, when we did our show and tell last week, someone asked, "Well, did you ask about resident status?" Mm. And no, we didn't. But of of course we should like as soon as they said it i'm like oh my right. god how did we miss that well we yeah. missed that because we it's not a reality that we live and yeah. <laughs> none of the people we asked live that reality either um and like the best we can do is say like on the next one that's going to be there 100 percent um but it it's it's really really challenging um so, okay, so so to answer your question more specifically, like, we have all of this data, all these people who said, I'm a full-time employee, I'm a contractor, I make this much money, and we have no idea about their residency status, um, which absolutely affects all of it. Yeah. Um, and so this, um, this you're going to, you know, when these results are going to be more public, um, 
no one will know that that's not there, that that yeah. wasn't considered. Um, and so all of these little assumptions, one assumption at some point, and then it's checked by other assumptions, gets tucked away into the ultimate data, um, in, into the ultimate presentation of the data, I should say. Um, one of the things we did talk about is 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 when this kind of full experience of, of the the browsable results come out, um, that we the methodology is really really important. That we want to show this is what the question was that led to this. This is the wording, yeah. um, because then someone can can look at that question and say, okay, I understand how they got here. This isn't perfect. Yeah, I know it's not perfect, but I understand what they were asking that led to this particular result. Yeah, um, and I think more there are a lot of these other a lot of these happen in like um, I've seen a couple like JavaScript surveys that are kind of of this same nature. Mm. Um, they really need to be showing the question that they asked yeah. to get here um, because you really can't. The results are really challenging to to understand without that. And I mean, you remind me of something. Uh, uh, a friend of mine, um, uh, Brianna Morgan, talks about this with with public health data, and like she wants to redesign the experience such that uh, you look at the data in a way that it lets you know what the data isn't saying. Yeah. Like this is meant to represent. We're pretty good around saying this is meant to represent this right mm -hmm. kind of information. Um, but we're not, we haven't really cracked how to design in a way where you're actually leading with it what it doesn't tell you so that you have the right context when you look at it. Because that's, that's another bias. There's a sort of survivorship bias or just a, the way Daniel Kahneman puts it is like what you see is all there is. Like yeah. that's how people approach life because right. you kind of have to. We're busy people. So when you see like a survey like that, unless you explicitly are thinking about residency you're gonna assume i'm sure they accounted for residency right <laughs> right you're just, I'm, I'm sure they i'm sure they thought of all of the things whenever right. whenever you look at any anything like that you're like oh i'm sure they've, they've thought of everything it's like no humans can't do that right there's a ton of things that aren't here <laughs> right so you need the context and we again going to that design challenge thing that's like i think a really exciting field is to sort of how do we talk about the things that aren't there right, right. <laughs> you know? yes. it's like invisible design yeah yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Totally. and i think um i think I think and certainly people are like working as, as the conversations are continuing in, in ethical design, people are asking more of those questions about how do we present these things ethically? And it often is not, it's not prettier by nature oh, of <laughs> you're, you're sharing more information. You're trying to, you're trying to um, show more people behind the scenes of your process. Mm -hmm. And that does take away a little bit of this idea of like things can just be magic and you can just have these beautiful visualizations. Um, it does take away the magic of it a bit, but I think, Ultimately, like that's what good design does mean. It, it, especially in this, with this lens, it is taking people along this journey to understand yeah. that specific questions yielded specific answers, and, yeah. and you have to understand them within a context. Yeah, and and you're you're hitting on something that I think is an internal conflict here around. We are trained as designers, especially in tech, to hide complexity. Yeah, <laughs> and some of some of these questions. Um, are done a disservice by hiding complexity. You right. almost, it's almost your ethical duty to raise the complexity and right. like really put it front and center and say, look, this is complex. Yeah. Right. And teach people how to pull apart that complexity. Yeah. Right? You yeah. did all that work to do that. Now, how can you help someone do that a little easier? Yeah. 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 Um, super hard. Yeah. <laughs> so really be before we run out of time, I do want to talk about, you know, the results. I know you haven't synthesized everything yet, but what are some of the high level learnings you've got so far? Yeah. Um, I think that 
um, one one of the things that we saw, um, a, we 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 saw the gender we saw the gender disparity in pay. Um, we saw some it's something like 80 percent, eighty to eighty five percent, I think it was, depending on the position. Um, for but, sorry, just to be clear, that men men make, sorry, that women make about eighty to eighty five percent less than men. Um, in in general, across all titles, eighty to eighty five percent less. Nope, sorry. Oh, okay. 80, <laughs> I, like, wow, oh my gosh. I know it's bad. I didn't know it was that bad. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, eighty percent of. Oh, eighty percent of what? Yes. Okay, which is so the national average is like seventy eight percent. So okay. that Philly is. I mean, for our respondents, our set of right. respondents, right. which we had about three hundred and thirty. Okay. Um. So it's like it's it's is it an enormous set? No. Is it large for designers in Philly? We, yeah, I, we think so. We don't know how many there right. are total. Um, we haven't had a meeting of all of them yet, um, but it felt like a pretty good set, and it was a pretty diverse set, mm-hmm. um, not just in terms of, of demographics, but in terms of um, responses of, mm. of all sorts of levels of junior to senior, all sorts of salaries. And so we feel pretty confident in this, like it is like this 85, 80 to eighty five percent of what um, of what men make as a whole. Mm-hmm. And we saw this really interesting thing. Um, we. In, from agency versus in-house. Mm. From what we know about the field, we expected um, salaries at in-house to be higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found, though, that um, the jump that women get from moving from agency to in-house is significantly larger than the jump that men get from moving agency to in-house. So to be clear, men still make more on average, but the jump is much smaller. Mm-hmm. So I think it was something, if I, if I can remember off the top of my head, I think it was something like ninety one dollars to $93,000 $93, was the, the men's median. Mm-hmm. Whereas women went from something like eighty four to 91. It was a much larger jump, much hmm. starker. Um, and, you know, it, and, that, and that was very clear. It was this very clear result. And so we were wondering about like why that would be, um, what, what would cause that maybe, um, experience levels being higher at, um, at product agencies. I mean, certainly like we wouldn't expect like discrimination is just less, right? Like, <laughs> we, we wouldn't expect that cause they still exist within the same culture, but maybe there are other factors that allow women to, um, be, become much closer in, in that, that disparity is much smaller. Mm. Um, and, and, in, at an in-house at like a product shop or something like that. Um, we also, we, we had about, um, 20% non-straight respondents. Mm. Um, so that's anything from, you know, any queer response, anything like that. Um, which is larger. I think, I think, um, AIGA did a survey in 2017, um, and they've just released their 2019 design census, and that's worldwide. Um, and they saw a similar jump. They saw from 2017 something like 15% queer respondents to in the 20%. Hmm. So, so like more, like I'm not sure that the world is getting more queer if people are more free, feeling more yeah. free to identify in that way and and on, and on surveys. Um, but we saw a relatively close, um, relatively close salary between. Um, straight and non-straight mm-hmm. responses. So, so that was interesting to, to see like a place where you don't see disparity. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, um, the, 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 we, we unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately had to group all non-white responses together as well, because we didn't have enough to say like, Oh, black designers make this much right. because really the responses were in the, um, something like 
the low double digits, 10 to right. 20, and um, didn't feel responsible to share that. But we did see a pretty, um, something like, similar actually to the gender disparity is the racial disparity. Mm. So um, they're making 80% of what, um, something like 80% of what white designers are making yeah. as a whole. Yeah. So overall, we're seeing about this, like this sort of like my majority minority trend of like a hundred percent to like 80% yeah. in terms of salary. Um, and, and like that jives with national averages, which is sure. kind of what we expected, yeah. but it does give us an understanding to say like, yes, this is still a problem in Philly. Even if you look around and see that your team, it looks diverse, it's still a problem that we need to kind of advocate around. Yeah. And yep. that's the, the hidden inequality precisely because we don't feel comfortable talking about our salaries. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and we hope that this, this, we hope that some of these results do empower people who, who feel like they need to be doing more from an allyship perspective to mm -hmm. advocate for their peers who they feel aren't making enough. We hope that this also is says like, yes, you're correct. Like you're, you're feeling like you're getting paid less. You might be like, yes. Yeah, like, yeah. And there's even value in that, right? right. Like just feeling like you're not crazy. A hundred percent. Um, just feeling validated that these do, that these show that like your feeling is, yeah, you might be yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, what is, what is sort of the next steps for the, uh, for the project? Yeah. Um, good question. So, um, we did a sort of a show until last week, but, um, this uh, coming in in towards the end of October, we hope to have sort of an online, um, a way to browse the results online um, in sort of a scripted way to like show specific. We don't want to just present all the raw data um, because that has privacy concerns. Um, to allow people to like mix and match however they want, you could likely find individuals at certain intersections of minorities, but. Um, we want to have like some scripted things so I can see like, I can see that gender disparity by job. I can mm. see like, I can sort of play with it a little bit to make some comparisons. Yeah. So we're working on sort of like, we're three designers. Um, Lauren has done an amazing job with starting to figure out like chart.js or whatever <laughs> that I know nothing about. But so we're starting to like kind of put those pieces together to make that sort of experience. Nice. nice. Yeah. Um, if people want to learn more, is there like a Twitter handle or just any kind of resource for them to look at? Yes, we have, um, our website is designsurvey.us, um, and that has a mailing list on there, um, cool. that they can sign up for to get updates. Awesome. Um, I think that's how we're, we're putting things out right now. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for, uh, coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was great. Um, for the uh, Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas, and uh, we will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.